Hello and welcome to the Use Because podcast. Deeper learning from the best business minds to have ever put pen to paper. Sensemaking by Christian Matzberg is really almost like the, the flip side to the idea that big data has all the answers. In this book, Sensemaking, Christian basically says that big data doesn't have all the answers. It's halfway there if you like and the way i haven't haven't read this book the way i consider it is that data is like the recipe but it thinks it's the cake and it isn't big data can tell you lots of interesting things about your customers about your customer service department what they call the nps right the the net promoter score all sorts of things the big issue at the moment is that there's so much data out there that people don't necessarily know how to interpret it or how to use it. And in his book, Sense Making, he talks about the space that exists for the humanities, for understanding the, the philosophies, the psychologies, the, the good feeling that's be, almost being eradicated by the use of big data, by this idea that big data means we don't need people anymore. All people do is make mistakes. And so when people talk about their good feelings or their, their, their sense of something being correct, well, where's the data to back it up? That seems to be the world that we're living in at the moment. And the author, Christian Madsberg, says that there absolutely has to be a space for the humanities. So let me give you an example of, now this isn't, this isn't from the book, but this is something I've talked about over the years and I've, I've spoken about previously as well. But the four stages of mastery and how I think it fits in to what the author is talking about in this book. So let's imagine that you want to become a gold medalist at the Olympics in fencing, right? You know, fencing with the the, uh, the sword and the little thing at the end, the little rubber ball or whatever it is at the end so you don't hurt people and you put a sieve over your face. Of course, what anyone is going to do, let's say you know absolutely nothing about fencing, the first thing you're going to do when you put on the, the sieve and you put on the, the straight jacket and the give you the sword you're going to swing it around and go <laughs> on guard right that's what most people are going to do because there's four stages to mastery now if you know absolutely nothing about fencing right and i'm using fencing as an example because i would think most people don't know much about fencing if you if you look at the first part of mastery or getting to a, getting to that gold medal that we're looking for the first part of mastery is what's known as unconscious incompetence so i'm standing there on my first lesson for um, learning how to do fencing, right, to get my gold medal in the Olympics. The first thing is unconscious incompetence. And what that means is that I don't even know what I don't know. I know there's probably some technique to it. I have no idea what any of the techniques are. I don't even know how to stand. I don't know how to hold a sword. I don't even know if it's called a sword, right? Unconscious incompetence. I'm not even aware of what I don't know. And let's say we fast forward two, three months later and I'm taking two or three lessons a week, and now I'm starting to, to get the hang of the ideas behind fencing. Not even getting a hang of actually executing the ideas, but getting the idea that there is technique to it. And that's called, the, the second part of, of mastering something is called conscious incompetence. So I'm consciously aware that there are moves, but I can't do any of them. So the second part is, conscious incompetence and now let's say we fast forward six months right so now we're we're nine months almost a year into it at this stage 
and our training is intensifying. And we're getting somewhat good at fencing, right? Maybe we've won a couple of competitions, maybe we have um, accelerated up the levels, whatever it is. Then you get to the third stage of mastering something, and it's called conscious competence. Where I know there are moves, I'm in the, the heat of battle, let's say, and now I'm going to attempt this particular move, and I'm, I'm consciously going to try it. That's the third level of mastery, and it's where most people stay when they are when they've acquired a new skill, whether it's leadership, sales, management, or learning the guitar, right? There's whatever, whatever the, the, the thing is you're trying to learn, most people get good enough and that's good enough, right? That's how they kind of understand it. But the fourth level of mastery is unconscious competence. It's when it, it just it just happens. I don't know. It just I just did it. Like having that sixth sense, or like having a like a, a great salesperson who has been working in sales for twenty or thirty years. And I don't know, people just buy from me. They just It just happens. Or the people who are considered to be great leaders in an organization or just in life in general. And if you ask them to, to codify how they actually do it, most of them be like, I don't know, I just, I just, you know, do what I do. The fourth stage, like I said, is called unconscious competence, where it just, it just happens. And there's a great quote from, I believe it's Ian Rush, the footballer from many years ago. And he was asked before, well, what's it like to, to score a goal at Anfield? And he said, I've no idea. I know I can sense when it's about to happen, like the seconds leading up to, to scoring a goal. And then it all just goes black and I, I wake up and I'm at the sideline celebrating with my teammates and with the fans and I've, I've no idea how it happened. But the, the effort that he takes to score a goal or for, you know, whatever sport, pick your, pick your favourite sports star or your, your favourite salesperson, whatever it is, most of them can't tell you how it happens or why it happens. You just know that in the moment they felt something and it was just it just felt correct. So the and I've said this before as well, to get from the third stage to the fourth stage, to get from being pretty good or what we call conscious competence to the fourth stage where you're really mastering something, unconscious competence takes deliberate practice. You need to deliberately practice things. But it's in this deliberate practice that leads to that intangible it leads to that intangible skill where it's hard to codify it's hard to put your put your finger on on why that that negotiation went so well or you know in the book himself he actually talks about how there's soldiers who sometimes they just kind of have a sense that there's landmines around them for example or a, a paramedic who reaches for the defibrillator before the patient is showing any signs of going into cardiac arrest. It's those kinds of things where it's just, it's years and decades of experience, just something just has, there's something, and I can't put my finger on what it is. That's the, that's the fourth stage of mastery, and deliberate practice can get you there. But the reason I'm explaining those four stages of, of mastery when it comes to fencing, whatever the thing is, is because it really ties in what he's talking about in this book about sense making, that all this big data in the world it's like I said, it's like the recipe where, where what we really want to have is the cake. We, we want to know, an example he gives is that um, big data might tell you, if you, you're a, a big milk company, sell lots of milk, maybe your data tells you that 86% of people drink milk. But it doesn't tell you why they drink the milk. 
And if you look at Silicon Valley, they want to they want to codify everything. They want to put everything into big data. Now I'm speaking uh, from the point of view of the author here that everybody wants to codify and the data is going to send you in the right direction. But if you do that all the time and remove instinct from from any situation or the human element from any situation, you're putting yourself at a disadvantage. So he tells a story about George Soros, who was considered the man who broke the Bank of England, who doubled down on the bet basically about uh, the the English um, changing their currency. Or what well, they weren't changing their currency; they were devaluing their currency. I think I don't know much about stock markets and that kind of thing. And he made a killing anyway. But a lot of it was to do with um, obviously he got the big data to begin with, right? He got all the information that he needed, but then he allowed it to almost marinate in his head, and he kind of thought about, well, you know, do I have a a sense of how this is going to go, or what's what's most likely to happen, and supposedly um, that man uh, who's an investor, George Soros, he he relies a lot on you know pain that he gets in his lower back, or if somebody on his team starts to develop a cough, you think there's something in that. There's a there's there's something that's intangible in there. The big data will get you so far, but it's that last little bit where you need to interpret that data. And that's what sense-making is all about. So, in this book, Sense-Making, the author says that there's five principles for uh, for making sense of things, right? For understanding this, this big data. And I'll read out what they say here, and we'll go through each one then, and I'll explain what I think he means by it, and um, uh, we'll take it from there. First one is people not individual. It's important that you add in cultural context. Uh, we'll come back to that one. Uh, second one is thick data. Thick, T-H-I-C-K. Thick data rather than thin. And it's the example there of the 86% of people drink milk. To him, that's thin data. That's It's an interesting fact. But if you don't know why they drink milk or we don't know what their intentions are, then that leads to problems further down the road. Third thing then is uh, human behavior. It's better understood in social contexts, not in the abstract. And what he talks about there is that you should look at data on the savanna and not in the zoo. And I'll come back to that one. That's a genius one as well. Number four then is uh, logic is one element, but you need immersion. You need uh, intuition. Um, you need hypotheses to work from. You need to hold lots of ideas in your head at one time as to what this data could mean. Logic is one thing, but you need more. And I'm going to tell you a story about a guy called Daniel Pearl from, um, well, he's, I was going to say he's from a book called Mastery. He's mentioned in a book called Mastery. I'll, I'll tell you about that in, in a few minutes. And the fifth one then is not data alone attuned to the world. One of the things he talks about is um, the Google Trends which had a, a massive, made a massive mistake basically in 2008, where they predicted, um, they were going to try and predict where flu, a flu was going to um, break out right around the world. And they're going to base it on the raw data, right? The data that people were looking for, symptoms of the flu, or, you know, they had lots of kind of data points they were putting in there. And this would help them to predict where the next flu epidemic was going to be. But they completely missed the H1N1 uh, flu virus. And then they also predicted that in 2012 and 2013 there was going to be a massive outbreak of flu, and there wasn't. And that just shows you how imperfect big data can be by itself, because the data itself is, like I said, it's the it's the ingredients for a recipe for a cake, but there's no richness to it. There's no intent behind it. There's no understanding as to, you know, why somebody searched for that in that particular area. So 
now of course you could you could you could drill that into that even more going yeah but we could get the intention we could we the more data points we could put in there the more we'd understand the intent behind somebody's search and so on and so forth which is fine but uh, we're not there yet so we still need human intuition according to the author and what I always think about is, you know, you're supposed to be doing some work and it's uh, you know, half four on a Friday afternoon and you start thinking, I wonder what the most expensive yacht in the world is. And you Google it and then you're just in a rabbit hole looking at expensive yachts and the ones that have, uh, you know, cinemas on them and swimming pools and all sorts of things. And you think, man, that's mad. People spend that much money on a yacht. And then what Google does, now I'm probably being a little bit ridiculous here, but what Google will do then is it'll start showing you ads for billion dollar yachts and asking you, is this, do you want to buy a yacht? So what you're looking to do, you're looking to buy a yacht. Because it's stupid. Google is stupid. It thinks that's what, it's trying to understand your intent and it doesn't. Or, a more, more realistic case I suppose, rather than billion dollar yachts, is when you search for something and then you go and buy it and it continues to show you ads afterwards. Or you've, you've bought something that is, you know, ticked to a show or something and the show has come and gone and they're still showing you ads for that particular uh, type of event or whatever it is. There's, there's loads of things where you're like, oh, Google, you're so stupid. I love you, but you're so stupid. You, you, you don't understand that there's there's time involved. Now, of course, you can hit the X on the ad and you'll have to tell the ad, why do you not want to see this? It's because um, I've already bought it. Um, I don't like this. It's not relevant and so on. And you're obviously all of us together then are helping to teach Google. Um you know how to sell us more stuff basically but it's the it's the point he gives in the book that you know big data will will get you so far but without the human interaction without the, the human instinct the gut feeling the well-trained gut feeling i should say then you're kind of you're leaving yourself at a bit of a loss as to um what's really happening behind the data so what what can happen is you can end up in an echo chamber he tells a story about the uh, the Ford Lincoln, right? The Lincoln was um, a, a, it's called a town car in America, and it was the the car that uh, JFK was in when he was assassinated in Dallas, and it was considered for a long time to be a very very luxury car. It was very, uh, you know, the well-to-do people were always seen in a Lincoln, and then over the decades it started to slide, and then I think by the time they tried to do something about it they had maybe 5.5 percent of the share of the market and when so i think the author went in and actually worked with ford on this worked with them to to understand you know why their their market share was so low and what they could do to, to do to help more and to cut a long story short and it's actually it's a fascinating read if you're if you're if you want to, if you're interested in the details, it's in the book. But if you, he first of all starts off by explaining how the CEO of Ford has a team of people whose only job is to protect his time, to make sure that his time is not wasted on things that he doesn't need to waste his time on. And what that means is then that when people come for meetings with the CEO, they've sanitized all of their data, all of their talking points. They want to make sure they don't get shouted at. They want to make sure they get the exact point across. And what it means is that the CEO is making decisions, obviously for, you know, 100,000 people, 200,000 people, whatever amount of people work for Ford. He's making these decisions almost in isolation without any immersion into into what's actually occurring in the in the real world. And this was the crux of the problem when it came to looking at why the Ford Lincoln 
wasn't doing so well against the other luxury cars. They were all into their engineering, making sure that they, they were trying to sell it on the, the engineering principles behind the car, but how well it performed and so on and so forth. So what Christian Madsberg did then is he went in and he said, you know what you need to do? You need to go and talk to your customers, which is a really obvious thing when it comes to to sales or to understanding um, your market. Is go and talk to your customers. It's it's something that you just do all the time. If in doubt, ask a customer a question. That's what I always think. Uh, they went out and they did that, and they realised that luxury cars wasn't necessarily about the uh, the engineering principles, which are of course important. The car has to work and it has to be reliable, and it's kind of goes without saying. But when somebody has a Lincoln or somebody has a luxury car it's almost like they're using it for different things some people were using it for uh for an extension of their office some people were using it as um to get away from all of life right they they would rock out to their favorite uh, album in the car and wanted to be able to do that in peace they uh they found that most people the, the engineering principles, you know, the, the, the acceleration or the brake horsepower or whatever it is that goes into these cars was actually irrelevant because most of the time the car was going bumper to bumper in traffic, going to and from the office, and the rest of the time was just sitting parked. So there was loads of data points that they, they had about the car and about who was buying, but they didn't know anything about the intent behind why somebody would buy these, these luxury cars. So there's a it's not just about the specs, it has to be about the emotions, right? And that's what he talks about when he says uh, thick data, right? Which is the second point, is that thick data has to be about understanding the intent behind it. It's almost like it's almost like colouring in the um, the picture of, of the data. The data is like the, the outline of the drawing, and then the, you want to colour it in with the emotions or with the intent behind it. So he says that thick data comes from Data, data with context and he says there's four ways to know something uh, four types of knowledge really is what he says and the first one he says is, is objective knowledge these are things that are true no matter who tests them right within reason it's things that are true that we all agree on regardless of uh, you know religion or creed or what anything we all just agree on on these things like for example gravity right is 9.81 acceleration uh, meters per second per second whatever it is for for gravity or that water is made up of h2o right two hydrogen atoms one oxygen atom these things are objective right these are true no matter what then he says the second part of thick data comes from subjective knowledge things like i'm cold um it's getting late like these kinds of things right where they're true to me but they might not necessarily be true to everyone the third type of data then is shared knowledge. And shared knowledge means, or what he calls the shared human experience. It could be something like um, the Jewish experience is the example that he gives. Like the, like the Jewish people know what it's like to be Jewish. Or other people from outside the Jewish community can look in and say, there, there is an experience of being Jewish that I am not part of. Right. So that's like shared knowledge. And the last one then is sensory. Right? Sensory knowledge, where you just have that that sense of something like I was talking earlier on about you know somebody scoring a goal or somebody uh, winning that gold medal at fencing they just have a sense of of something right there's uh, I can't put my finger on it I just know it's true because it's true and I don't ask me to explain it and ultimately what he says is that sense making is about using those four different types of knowledge all at the same time and this works for sales it works for 
leadership, it works in, in every aspect, in communication, negotiation, persuasion, it works in every aspect of a business and in your personal life as well, is to know what's true objectively. Like say there's an argument between you and your husband or you and your wife or you and your kids or your boss or somebody who reports to you, an argument breaks out. Before you go into this difficult conversation, you can ask yourself those four things. What's objectively true here? What's subjectively true? What's true to me might not necessarily be true to the other person. What kind of shared experience do we have? Or what kind of shared knowledge do we have, if any? And what does my gut feeling tell me about this particular situation, right? What's the, the sensory knowledge that I have about this? That could lead to something of value. That could help you, um, you know, make sense of the situation. Which is not really what he's talking about in this book, but it's to me it's an interesting way to, to look at life, to, to look at the, the different levels of knowledge and understanding you know, which bits do I have, which bits do I not have, which bits am I am I leaning on too much in these difficult conversations, in a in a in a sales presentation, whatever it is, which levels of those knowledge have gaps. So that's uh, that'll lead to thick knowledge. And one of the things I always think about when I was reading this book is uh, two other podcasts that I did. Um the most recent one from the one, this one is uh um Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. And it's about uh, negotiation. So he was a, he's a former FBI negotiator who um, was incredible at it because he understood it in real terms, not just in the theoretical. And the second one is the book that I talked about in that podcast in, in, in Never Split the Difference, which is Getting to Yes. And again, it weirdly, uh, Chris Voss is actually mentioned in this book as well, which is kind of random. But it, it, those two books together... I, I mentioned this in the last one as well. I talked about the map not being the territory. But he actually talks about it here as well. He said, thick data means looking at the savannah and not the zoo. So, the, the, like if you're going to go look at a look at a tiger in the zoo, um, you, can, you can see the data of a tiger. That is a tiger. He has a big head and a tail and big jaws and sharp teeth and looks angry. But you're not really understanding him in his natural habitat. And it's difficult to really uh, appreciate what that tiger actually is because he's you can stand very close to him with the glass in between or the fence or whatever it is but if you look at him out in savannah out in the wild out in his real habitat you get to understand how he lives his life and that's the same thing that i was saying in the previous podcast never split the difference is that never split the difference was like the territory whereas getting to yes was like the map and i'll just explain it again here really quickly so getting to yes is a is is considered the, one of the best books ever written on negotiation, and it's true, it is. But it breaks negotiation down into very logical steps, into understanding that you should separate the person from the problem, and get behind a person's position that they've taken up, and understand their interests behind that position, and so on and so forth, which is all true, which is what you should do. But in the second book, Never Split the Difference, by Chris Voss, the FBI negotiator, he mentions getting to yes. He says he read that book, and it's taught in, um, you know, negotiation school or whatever it was that he, he learned negotiation but he said a fundamental issue he had with getting to yes is that they are assuming that people are logical in a negotiation that their emotions are that the, the person across from the table or in his case you know inside the bank and he's outside trying to get the hostages out there's an assumption in getting to yes that the other person is in total control of their emotions and because they're in total control of their emotions these are the steps you should take and Chris Voss makes the point that that just isn't the case. 
that emotions are the problem understanding the other person's emotions and that they are irrational you use that to your advantage to make sure that you're showing what he calls tactical empathy that you're uh, you're you are getting in behind the position they've taken up to understand their interests but the map is not the territory so the map if you're going to climb a mountain this is what i said in the last uh, podcast if you're going to climb a mountain of course you're going to go look at a map first of all and you'll see like the path you're going to take all the way to the top of the mountain but the map doesn't tell you anything about what the weather is going to be like or uh, what how you're going to be feeling you know three quarters of the way up if you're going to get blisters on your heels because you're wearing new shoes or the person with you is um, slowing you down or going too fast all these different things the map is not the territory the territory is like the 3d version whereas the map is the 2d version so it's the same thing here in sense making that thick data means to be able to look at it in its real habitat to understand what where these data points came from and not just looking at it in the zoo not just looking at it in isolation so the the fourth the fourth principle if you like of uh, of sense making is logic is one element and he talks about the US Naval Academy uh, many years ago they they all used to learn to navigate by the stars and then once GPS came in they said well we don't need to do that anymore so we'll just uh, we'll go by GPS until they realize actually we could get hacked and then where would we be right in the middle of the ocean with uh, nobody having a clue where we were so they went back then to teaching the the naval students how to map the stars basically how to, to understand how to get around the place by using the stars and his point in the book is that it has to come from you have to get data from everywhere and this is how you enliven or enrich your data is by taking information from lots of different places you're like you've probably on a, on a much much smaller scale than you know getting a, a u.s destroyer um, from one side of the world to the other you know when your your gps your google maps whatever version that you're using uh wants you to go one particular way but you just oh, that's yeah that might be the fastest way but i just know that there's something happening up there or it's actually not the quickest way because i want to do this other thing instead or the gps doesn't get you the last couple of meters right if you've ever had that experience where it says take the next left and go well, is it this left or the next left or it sometimes misses the, the last you know 10 or 15 meters um of a direction so if you rely purely on one piece of information on one stream of data uh, you could end up messing yourself up so you have to be able to to enrich that data by taking information from lots of different spaces or lots of different areas all at the same time so i want to tell you about uh daniel everett i think it's a daniel pearl at the, at the beginning that was the journalist uh, who died but uh, i meant daniel everett is the the guy i want to talk about so daniel everett was a a linguist right he his job was to understand languages and so on and he back in the day can't remember the exact year but he was sent into i think the pygmy tribe to try and uh decipher their language to try and make sense of how they uh communicated now that was one of those tribes might not have been the pygmies but it was one of those tribes that were like completely isolated knew nothing about the modern world and so on but they welcomed him in they uh they said yeah sure come and live with us you know they said it through gestures and whatever and he kind of ingratiated himself there but what he did for the first while was to rely on his understanding of languages that he had had learned uh previously so he had like his logical structures to and uh, this is how language goes so i'm just going to take these rules that i already know 
and I'm going to reverse engineer their language and I'm going to just figure out what exactly they're talking about. And after months and months and months of this, he had made pretty much zero headway. He had made um, no inroads into how they were communicating what certain words meant. So there were certain words where he thought it meant one thing and then he heard it in a completely different context. And it turns out it didn't mean that at all. It was something completely different. So he got to a point where it was either make or break. I'm either just going to have to give up here or I'm going to have to just do something completely different. And what he decided to do, um, thankfully, was to do something completely different. He's decided just to scrap all of his rules about language, all of what he understood um, about structure. And what he did was he decided to consider himself almost like an infant amongst them to go and live uh, with the family and just don't do anything just, just don't do anything just anytime he would think of a structure or a rule or uh, some logic for how a language should go he'd do his best to ignore it he had to just immerse himself into it and really what he was doing was what you would consider the author's talking about here is that he wasn't just taking information from one stream of data he was taking information from everywhere he was just open to anything that would come his way and after doing this for a few months he started to, to find success and he started to not just understand language as you know a structure of, of noises that a person makes with their mouth he understood that it it's a way of verbalizing their emotions, verbalizing their way of life. And he discovered some really interesting things about this particular tribe. And he discovered that they didn't have words for the past or for the future. As in, they didn't have a past tense and a future tense. All they ever had was a present tense, was all they ever had was now. So, for example, when somebody in the tribe died, there was no funeral, there was no feeling bad, there was nothing. He just moved on. And the same thing when a child was born, they were looked after and they were um, cared for, but there was no joyous celebration. And his understanding was was that it was all down to the to, to how their life was, to, to the reality of, of what it was like to live in this tribe in the middle of this really harsh jungle. There wasn't enough resources to be thinking about people that had died and to be looking back in time and to be looking into the future and making plans all there was was what are we eating now right is something going to kill us what's the next things that's going to that's going to kill us and by immersing himself into the the culture he was able to enrich his own data he was able to enrich his own understanding of who they were and in turn what their language was so it comes back to what uh, Christian Madsburg says in this book Sense Making that if you only have a thin stream of data you're doing yourself a disservice because you're you're not allowing uh, you're not allowing yourself to color in the the whole experience for whether it's the customer or the potential customer or the person you're having a conversation with this is what he's talking about in the book is that there has to be more to the big data than just you know a final answer on an excel sheet on a report and he's also not saying that that information is not important of course it is that's your starting point his point in this book is that it seems that a lot of people are disregarding the gut feeling they're disregarding the humanity side of things or they're not being they're not using what Chris Voss would call tactical empathy. They're not they're not making sure that they're adding in why people are making these decisions. Like the Ford Lincoln. They're you know, they, they wanted to know why are people not buying the car? The it goes, you know, zero to sixty in three seconds and whatever it was. Why are people not buying their car? Because it wasn't about the engineering. 
It was about the experience of actually being in one of their cars. That's what people were missing. And that's what they were not selling people. So big data is very, very useful, very interesting. Uh, I love it. I, I could get lost in those kind of uh, those reports that are generated about data. Uh, I find them fascinating. But you also have to allow for the the intangible. You have to allow for the 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 human element of what we're all trying to do. And actually, what I'll do is I'll finish with a story um, about about Chris Voss, right? Who is the author of um, Never Split the Difference. Um, he actually tells a story in this. So he tells a story about a woman called Jill Carroll, who was kidnapped in 2006 in Iraq. Uh, she was a journalist, and uh, they, they heard nothing from the kidnappers, and uh, the FBI were brought in because she was an American citizen in Iraq, and uh, Chris Foss was on the, the negotiating team. So three weeks pass, and they've heard nothing from the kidnappers, and then suddenly a video is shown on Al Jazeera uh, TV, the, the news station in uh, for that region. And what Chris Voss understood from watching that video straight away was that the video wasn't necessarily for the FBI or for Jill Carroll's family. It was for Iraqi citizens who were on the fence about whether this was a good thing or a bad thing. They were trying to buy the hearts and minds of these uh, these fellow citizens of theirs. And Chris Voss was able to understand this by you know using tactical empathy, I suppose, and looking at... Uh, how they were portraying their case and so on, and I think their list of demands were a bit, uh, a bit all over the place. And they were like, a, it obviously wasn't clearly thought out. It was something like that that, that gave them a sense that this isn't really for us. It's for other Iraqi people. They're trying to to get the hearts and minds of these other people into their cause. So, what they decided to do was to to play, play their hand that way, rather than you know getting into a back and forth negotiation about what they would do and what they wouldn't do so what they did was they every time the fbi or any any time anyone on on jill carroll's family side of the, of the case anytime any of them were interviewed they would talk about the disrespect that the iraqi captors had shown to jill carroll because they had shown her in a video without anything on her head so her hair was uncovered which is a, a big no-no in in their community in their uh, in their culture and what that did was that started to buy the hearts and minds of those people on the fence in Iraq who are unsure whether this is a good thing or a bad thing and they started to think yeah do you know what that is disrespectful and so what happened was that the the Iraqi captors obviously saw this and they thought oh no we've been we've been played our own game here and they did another video and they covered her hair up and Chris Voss knew then that, uh, you know, this is, um, you know, he he basically won that round if it was like a you know, game of chess or something. It was it was it was one nil to the FBI. But in between those two videos, what they decided to do as well, the FBI, is they decided to get Jill Carroll's father to make a video. Uh, Jim Carroll is his name, and uh, they decided to use him from the family rather than anybody else because they understood that in Iraqi culture, the male head of the household is where it all kind of centers around that person, that individual. So by putting him forward and showing him in a respectful light, it may influence the Iraqi captors. They, it, it would be someone that they could relate to, a uh, like a, uh, somebody who ha is of similar status to them and their family, if that makes sense. 
And the first thing that Jim Carroll said was that he followed a very tight script. And the first thing that he said was that Jill Carroll is not your enemy. And what he wanted to do was to frame the whole idea that, that this person you've captured is not, that's not who your argument is with. That when she was reporting on your struggle, and when you release her, she'll continue to report on your struggle. And they, they understood, so they, what was happening then, and this is like, I mean, there's a bit more to the story, but the back and forth was then basically that Chris Voss understood that the captors were just looking for a way to release Jill safely and without losing face. And because they were able to understand that from the Iraqis' point of view, they were able to give them a way out, give them, uh, you know, a, a, give them an exit from the whole situation. And that's... A, a, a really interesting way, I think, of of enriching um, enriching your data, right? Rather than just looking at the the kidnappers' videos and saying, "Well, they look like they're indoors," and um, the particular video that they're using um, was sold in this particular, like all of that raw data is, of course, of value to them. They're 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 running this on more than one track, right? They're they're trying to get her back in as many different ways as they can. But Chris Voss's job was to understand the emotions behind what was happening, to understand the culture in which these people were operating and what mattered to them, and then put his argument forward in that context, and it worked out successfully. So this book, Sensemaking, is about that, and in more depth it's about that, about understanding data, but how to interpret it, how the computers have not caught up with human intuition. That's ultimately the bottom line here with uh, with this book. So Sensemaking by Christian Madsberg is fantastic read um thought it was interesting that as i was reading it uh, chris voss gets a mention i'd just done a podcast on him and he retweeted um one of our one of our tweets which was cool um so have a listen to and uh, never split the difference and have a listen to getting to yes and uh you'll it's all of these things together i think and it's it's what's really interesting about doing this podcast is that it's all of these different books all they all overlap each other that learning about leadership and learning about persuasion, learning about negotiation, learning about sense making, they all overlap. It all ultimately comes down to to understanding your own emotions and understanding the emotions of others. And once you do, you can start to move towards success, whatever that might be for you. So until next time, thanks very much. Thanks for listening. Tell two people to let you know about usebecause.com.